Episode 31, The Already But Not Yet Salvation Language in the New Testament, Part A. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. What you're about to hear is a two-hour-long conversation that I've split into two parts uh, because of its length. And uh, this may well be one of the most important uh, podcasts you ever hear because of the subject matter. And it's such a commonly misunderstood issue, the whole talk about salvation in the Bible and how that works. Uh, What we're going to talk about today is certainly part of that. And it is so frequently missed by people who've just never thought through it well And so again, this may be one of the most important uh, podcasts that you ever listen to. And so uh, because of that, I would like to encourage you to wait until you really have the time to pay attention and to really listen. Uh, Perhaps you need to listen to this anyway, just because you're driving or something, and that's certainly okay. But if you can wait until you can really be focused well, whatever that means for you, then uh, that might be a really good idea. So uh, I'm just punching this in as I'm recording the uh, titles uh, here today. Uh, But in just a minute, I will let it go to the pre-recorded part, and uh, you'll be on track for that. Well, it seems like it's been forever since I last did an episode. Uh, We did turn over a full year on April 27, I believe, was the... um, in 2020 was the first episode that we did. And in this year, uh, it's been a quite a modest beginning. Uh, just so you know, we have so far, I think the number is something like 1,241 uh, downloads, and those may be you know, partial or com- complete downloads, so it's difficult to tell. But uh, here I am on my little calculator, 1,241 divided by... Uh, 30 episodes is, uh, it's about 41 people listening per episode on the average. So uh, obviously this is quite a modest effort here, and um, we've not been uh, marketing, of course. That's uh, expensive and uh, requires a lot of time and energy that I just don't have available. So if you would uh, like others to Uh, hear this podcast, be sure not to to assume that they will just run across it in the natural course of their lives because we are not reaching out to anybody in that marketing kind of way. So you might uh, think about that if you have a way to help share and promote uh, what we're doing. I sure would appreciate you thinking about that. It's been a very busy few weeks. I'm uh, coming to a close in my semester with my um, school and uh, we have, uh, we've had a, a choral concert that included three groups, and then we just had our skits performances last week. Uh, they were uh, really good. I was very happy with how that turned out, and uh, I was super involved in the show myself, so um, I, I actually too involved, uh, so involved that I could not do everything excellently, and I hate that, but hey, what are you going to do? It was a good show. And we had a good time. Uh, also, I did uh, see some students overcome, uh, push through their um, their dispositions of holding back in order to really become such better actors than ever before and to, uh, to get out of their shells, so to speak. Um, that was really rewarding to see that. And it, of course, the result is some really good theater. So 
that is always fun, and I wish that uh, people would do that in all kinds of ways and not just in performance classes. Uh, so <laughs> anyway, um, uh, what I want to talk about today is a very important topic. Um, this idea of already, but not yet. Uh, this is a thing that we do uh, today in modern language. We will talk about, uh, you know, Billy's uh, going to be 18 in a week and his parents will say, well, now that you're an adult, you know, um, here's what you can expect from life. Well, he's not an adult yet, at least not according to the typical standard of being 18 and yet, but they talk about it as if it's already happened because it is so imminent or because it's such a sure thing to happen, you know, provided he doesn't die in the week until his birthday. And so, uh, this manner of speaking is not foreign to us and it was not foreign to the Bible writers either. They did sometimes talk about things that had not already happened, uh, but that were either such a sure thing or so imminent, or which I suppose may be the same as being sure, that they uh, went ahead and talked about them as if they already were. Um, or that there was some manner of provisional status. Uh, for example, um, suppose that you're hiring a position in your company and a candidate comes in and you find yourself discussing the job and, and you say, well, you'll be taking care of these uh, weekly reports and you'll be doing this and that and the other. Well, wait a minute, you haven't hired him yet. Uh, and yet here you are speaking as if it had already happened. So, uh, you know, this is useful kind of language sometimes. And uh, obviously, if you're using that kind of language, you might from time to time say, well, you know, if you did get the job, you will be doing this. <laughs> or you would be to use the subjunctive mood. And so... Uh, this is a thing that some Bible writers did. The question, of course, or one good question is, well, how much did they do it and in which particular passages? <laughs> and this, of course, opens a huge can of worms uh, in Bible interpretation. Uh, because if we get that wrong, uh, suppose somebody were reading the prophecies about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and they even read the New Testament accounts of that very same thing. And suppose they said, well, this is already but not yet language. Like, okay, so he's born in Bethlehem, but not really yet. And how can that be? And that stretches the mind somewhat, right? And it should. <clears throat> in fact, I don't think that those passages about him being born in Bethlehem are already, but not yet kind of passages. And so this uh, brings to mind the question, well, which passages are that kind of language? And of course, you know, we swim at our own risk. We interpret the Bible at our own risk. We might get it right. We might get it wrong. We might get it partially right. We might not understand uh, what are all the issues that are in play. And But that's how it goes. And I think this is quite on purpose. I think God knows full well that the Bible is not the easiest book to interpret uh, accurately. <laughs> it's, it's easy to interpret, but not accurately. Uh, not always, right? So he knows this. This is no surprise. He's not thinking, oh my, what shall we do? He knows that we're sort of thrown into the mix here and we have to work it out or not. You know, that we could choose to not work things out and not come up with good interpretations and so forth. So uh, it appears to me that this is part of God's plan for our lives, that we have to do some mental work ourselves and have to figure some, some things out or not, again, you know, we can choose not to do that work. And uh, I think that's an unfortunate choice. Uh, unfortunately, also, I think a lot of churches really cater to the crowd, to the or not crowd, <laughs> who does not want to do the work. And that is uh, quite a shame, especially since the work is so rewarding. If you go dig it into the Bible and find out uh, what it means, uh, you are going to be rewarded by what you find, unless you're a wicked person who does not care for the reality of how God has set up the world and his judgment and such. So uh, I, I asked a few days ago on a discussion forum about this uh, great examples of already but not yet language. 
and uh, in a group that frequently talks about that, and yet I did not get many examples, and that was curious to me. Uh, I would expect they might have a list of, you know, pretty good bullet list of examples, and and they did not, and it really got me thinking about this idea when we say, oh, well, this is how you interpret uh, this kind of Bible passage, and we get this little rule in our mind, and then we go around repeating the rule, but is it really a good rule, and do we know when to apply it and when not to apply it? And this is uh, certainly a big issue, I think, in Bible interpretation all the time. It's like that saying, to a hammer, everything is a nail. Uh, you, <laughs> Anytime the topic of nails comes up, the hammer says, nails? <laughs> it's ready to go pound nails, because that's what a hammer does. And so... Uh, anything that seems remotely like a nail, the hammer gets all excited. Oh, screws. Yeah, let's go pound the screws. And uh, that's, of course, a, a cognitive bias that that saying is highlighting there. And I think we can get that way when we learn the Bible thing. It's funny, I asked a, a question this week about um, how can a person, how can a Christian uh, avoid sinning? And uh, it's very interesting to look at all the different answers you get. But uh, one guy says, define sin. <laughs> and then he wanted to go on about, uh, you know, there's all kind of the, uh, disagreement about what is sin and what's not and, and all this. But he was wanting to have a totally different conversation. It, it's a, almost as if he had just come up with this study on sin. And once I mentioned the word, it triggered him and he wants to go off down that trail, even though that's not the question that I asked. And I think we can get that way a lot with our Bible thinking. We just get triggered into, oh, this is the time for me to repeat that meme or this other hearsay over here, uh, rather than really thinking through a thing. So today we're going to think through some things and uh, show you some evidence to ponder. And uh, the particular topic that I wanted to tackle is about how the uh, New Testament talks about salvation. And I'm talking words like save, saving, saved, saves salvation, and there's probably another um, variant or two that I left out, but you get the idea, I'm sure. I will be talking mostly from a script today because I, um, I pulled up a bajillion Bible verses for this one and wrote comments as I was going. So if you hear awkward pauses, it's me trying to decide whether to read to you what's on the page or to say what's on my mind. <laughs> so I imagine I'll do some of both. Okay, so uh, here we go. I... Uh, We've been talking about this already, but not yet, uh, kind of speaking in the Bible. And uh, I think that in the first century, the writers were writing this way about salvation. Uh, they knew about the new covenant, about God's forgiveness and Jesus's atonement and his ransom paying and such. They knew about the heavenly Jerusalem, that holy city, about the eternal life with God they knew it was certain for those who would live faithful as God and Jesus had in mind for them to do. And, and I want to make this really clear. They were thinking that if a person puts their faith in God and in Jesus, same thing, then it was a sure thing that as long as that person stayed faithful, that person is going to have eternal life once they're done here on this earth. That's what they believed. And of course, I cannot spell out that proof to you right now, um, but I would be happy to answer questions about that. Anyway, <clears throat> so their ultimate place in eternal life was a sure thing, provided they would live out their lives faithfully without turning away. And uh, this is a conditional kind of arrangement. This is not the, oh, you're guaranteed you got it made no matter what. It's not set it and forget it. It is uh, depending on how you continue to choose. And it was in, in this sense that I believe they considered themselves saved, uh, even though they knew full well that they could walk away from the new covenant and not be given eternal life, or that they could fall short of the kind of commitment to that covenant that God had in mind. Now, this is, uh, people get kind of uncomfortable here because so many are trained to think, oh no, uh, what you do has nothing to do with your uh, going to heaven or your eternal life or you know, however they want to talk about it. Uh, 
And I think that is a false idea. I think it has been made popular by lots of churches who want to fill lots of seats and not teach the real uh, truth of the Bible. Uh, there are definitely conditions on who gets to go to eternal life and who doesn't. We've talked about those a great deal already in these discussions, including all the language in Revelation 21 and 22 about, you know, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and, and you know, the wicked people, uh, but inside are the ones who have, uh, you know, purified themselves and so forth. So uh, there are lots of conditions. And so people get really uncomfortable when I talk about God making judgments in each case on who will get in and who won't. And um, while I'm here, let me go ahead and say this. I think that God is quite the forgiving sort. I think it is his disposition to forgive people uh, generally, and yet he also is not the sort to be hoodwinked or to be taken advantage of. Uh, you can't cheat God and get away with it. It's not like he's not going to notice it or that he's not going to care. And so he does make judgments about people and their behavior. And the Bible tells us then, you know, tells us this again and again. However, a lot of people just really don't want to pay attention to that part. They're not listening to those parts. And we'll certainly cover some of that today. Uh, actually, quite a lot of it. So not sure how long this uh, discussion will go. Maybe I'll cut it in half. Maybe it ends up being two hours. We'll see. <laughs> so uh, anyway, hope I didn't just scare you away. You can look and see how long the podcast uh, says it is on your screen there. Okay, so um, I think that everyone knew that they would not actually be saved. And I'm talking about the first century writers here and the Christians who learned from them. I think that uh, every one of them knew that they would not actually be saved until they had met personally with God before his judgment seat, and at which time he would judge them based on, quote, what they had done while in the body, whether good or bad. And I'm referring there to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. I think that every one of them knew that it was not a done deal until it was indeed a done deal. Let me read that passage again, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And this is certainly not the only place you can get this in the New Testament, uh, but it is so succinctly stated here that we, we have to read this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so this is Paul uh, writing this, I believe, probably in, uh, you know, later in the first century, maybe in the 60s AD, and that's a discussion for another day. But um, here he is writing to them, and he's an apostle of Jesus, an authorized um, messenger, you know, ambassador type of person, and he's saying we must all, well, who's the we? Is this all we humans or all we Christians or all we some other group? Well, it is probably at least all we Christians because here he is talking to Christians as a Christian, but perhaps it refers to all humans. And I believe that it does. And there are other passages that would cause me to believe that. But he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is not a picture of, hey, uh, gather up the church over there, and uh, hey, y'all are great because y'all were all in the church, and so uh, you've all made it. Yay, congratulations. No, it's an individual thing. Each individual would have to appear before the individual creator, and uh, which all comes back to living in the image now, doesn't it? I put this image out there, and you were to live in it. Well, how did that go, right? That's the idea here as I see it. They didn't have, in the first century, they didn't have this once saved, always saved um, group among them using such language in the way that some use it today. Now, please be sure to get me right here. Uh, you know, sort of parsing words here to be sure you know exactly what I mean. They wouldn't have believed strictly or literally 
the guy who says, yeah, I was saved when I was 17. Now, that's about that's how a lot of people talk about it today. But they wouldn't have strictly thought, oh, yes, when that guy was 17 years old, God gave him eternal life. In fact, uh, one of the quite obvious things is, well, that eternal kingdom is not here. It's a kingdom not of this world. It's a place to which Jesus said he would come back and get them and take them they could, where they could be where he was. Uh, that's you know John 14, that last part. Well, of course they knew he wasn't saved when he was 17, not in this normal, full, regular sense of what they meant by that. So uh, they knew that he had only entered into the new covenant, but had yet to live it out. He had yet to endure and to overcome, uh, to finish the race, to keep in step with the Spirit and such. You know, th this kind of language you find throughout the New Testament about the need for Christians to do these things, where uh, a lot of the modern-day focus is, is on, oh, yeah, uh, I had the experience when I was 17 or 29 or 64, you know, whatever the, the number is. Uh, so to be sure, they'd have agreed in once saved, always saved, provided that the saving we're talking about is the saving that happens when God welcomes some post-death person into eternal life at the judgment seat. They would certainly agree that someone saved at that meeting could never, quote, lose their salvation, end quote, and that they would be always saved, you know, as in once saved, always saved. But the question is whether they would have uh, talked about it the same way that so many of us do today, as if getting saved is a done deal, uh, you know, set it and forget it kind of a thing. Uh, so I went on, uh, but knowing the scriptures better than does this generation, they would never have believed that Billy can say at age 17, uh, quote, Jesus is Lord, end quote, and that this somehow changes Billy's status from one with no guarantee of eternal life into one with eternal life unconditionally guaranteed no matter what, which is how many, so many seem to view the concept today. Or for those who believe in a saving baptism, and I don't want to get into the baptism argument today one way or the other, but simply to acknowledge it, uh, the first century Christians would never have believed that Billy could get baptized at age 17 uh, and that this somehow changes Billy's status from one with no guarantee of eternal life into one with eternal life unconditionally guaranteed no matter what. Even so, you'll find saved language in the New Testament, just as so many use it today. Uh, so I'm going to give you some examples and explain what I'm talking about. And so what, what we're going to do here is we're going to launch into looking at a bunch of diff different Bible verses that talk about this in different ways so that we can sort of spell out this already but not yet business. Uh, Ephesians 2, verse 5. Uh, Even when we were dead in our trans trespasses, uh, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Notice it's past tense. It's a done deal, right? Uh, the, the way that it's written here, you have been saved. In uh, verse 8, uh, of Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. If you read this and this only, you're like, yeah, that was done. It was already taken care of. It was finished. Uh, Luke 7, verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So again, this is past tense. This is quite like people would use the term today. Uh, Romans 8, 24, for in this hope we were saved, were, past tense. It's a done deal, right? Well, if you read only that, uh, you might think that's all there is to it. Uh, 2 Timothy 1, 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. So again, who saved us, past tense. And then uh, Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So again, he saved us. 
Well, that's one, two, three, four, five, six passages out of the entire New Testament. I searched the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, for the word saved in the New Testament, and I found 108 uh, returns where uh, saved is used. But only in these six is it used clearly in that past tense sort of way. Now, I'm not putting together a statistical study for you. Uh, I'm sure some fault could be found with, uh, with some of this analysis. Uh, however, I think you're going to find it convincing even though it is not the most uh, perfect statistical analysis of things. And, and you'll see what I mean, I trust, in time as we go through the, through the discussion. So uh, six times out of 108, now there are some passages that are a little unclear exactly how they're using the word. And of course, sometimes the word saved is used of things not having to do with eternal life, such as Paul and the shipwreck and that they won't be saved uh, you know, from that danger and so forth. So uh, anyway, only six times in that 108 is it used the way that we commonly use it today in our church cultures. And and, uh, you know, I, I do not belong to a church, um, and I, but I certainly did, and I certainly use a word this same way uh, for many, many years. So uh, this is not me uh, getting on to people for something that I've never done myself, uh, just for the record. Okay, so uh, anyway, I think that this... Uh, talk about saved is an excellent example of legitimate already but not yet and and I do use an acronym for that a b n y already but not yet or or abney I'll call it at least informally in in private discussion uh, so I think it's an excellent example of legitimate abney language in the new testament this is why and most never notice this the New Testament has salvation language in the past tense, which we've just seen these six times uh, using this particular word, but it also has a salvation language in the ongoing tense, as in things that are happening right now and continuing to happen, and also in the future tense. And they talked about it in all three ways. They did not take the modern set it and forget it view of salvation, no, some passages make it exceedingly clear that they were looking ahead to it and hadn't received it yet. But some will simply ignore these passages. And I've, uh, I'll put up a link in the show notes about uh, to, to Bible Gateway, just showing the word saved and all the New Testament passages. So you can look at these all for yourself if you'd like to really get your head around it. Of those 108 returns, the uh, for searching the word saved. Remember, only six were talking about a, something that was clearly in the past, and that may be somewhat debatable, but even if you come up with 12, uh, you know, still, uh, that's 12 out of 108 times. So um, anyway, if you look at these returns, uh, uh, the following returns, they refer to something that was pretty clearly considered yet future at the time it was being talked about. So let me give you uh, these examples, and there are several passages here. I'm going to read them all. I believe there are 16, if I recall. Um, so that's a bit. Uh, oh, 18, it says. All right, so, so here we go. I'm going to start with Matthew uh, chapter 10, verse 22. And this is Jesus talking to his apostles. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Obviously, this is future tense, and the end is in mind that, you know, the conditional here is, well, you have to endure uh, to the end, and, and I think this is enduring as a faithful disciple, uh, and then you will be saved, you know, that is, at the end, and not before. Uh, Matthew 24, verse 12, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Same kind of language. Uh, Matthew 24, 22. And if those days had not been cut short, no human would be saved. But for the sake of the elect of those days, uh, or those days will be cut short. 
And this one, you have to use a little logic with it. He's saying, he's talking about a tribulation and that it would have to be cut short because it would be so intense that no human would be saved. Hmm. Well, think about that. If people were saved already before the tribulation, but then after it, it was so bad that nobody would be saved. Well, then were they really once saved, always saved? Well, no, they couldn't. How, how could you be? How could you walk into it saved and walk out of it unsaved if once saved, always saved is true? And so here again, he's talking about something that was yet future to the, the day in which he said it. Uh, so this is an important one to stop and reason through. You know, Come let us reason together this kind of idea. Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures till the end will be saved. And this, of course, is uh, probably from the same source as where we read it in Matthew, uh, whichever chapter that was. Okay, uh, again, in Mark 13, verse 20. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no human would be saved. And so uh, Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be be condemned. And I wrote a note here so I wouldn't forget it. Regardless of what you think about baptism, we should be diligent here to witness carefully just how they talked about these things. It doesn't matter, uh, or it doesn't say whoever believes and is baptized is saved, uh, or it doesn't say uh, will be saved at the very moment of the baptism. Uh, now, perhaps that's what he meant, or perhaps it isn't, but to be super honest, that's not what it says here. So if you want to prove that solidly, you're going to have to do it from some other passage. All right, so uh, here he's got a saving in the future and not a saving at the instant of. And so we need to take that into account as we look at all of this language. Moving on to John 10, verse 9. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Well, this is uh, future tense, and yet it doesn't stipulate the exact timing of it. And yet uh, he certainly, if he wanted to say they will be um, saved the instant they enter by the door, he certainly had the language to do that. So uh, Acts 2.21 and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Again, this is uh, future. Acts fifteen eleven, But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Uh, well, this is very interesting because who's writing this is people that we would say were already saved and yet writing about themselves, they say, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. Uh, well, okay. Why didn't they say, we believe we are saved? Clearly, they're looking ahead to something that a lot of moderns aren't looking ahead to. Uh, Acts 16, verse 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Um, they didn't say, you'll be saved today. They didn't say it'll be all settled with nothing left to be determined. No, it's future tense. Uh, Romans 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now this is very interesting. This is exceedingly instructing instructive if we will pay attention. I'm going to read it one more time. Since therefore we have now been justified, past tense, by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so they're justified already, yet the saving in view was still future. Now this one just totally flies in the face of what uh, so many think today 
the whole, you know, done deal, once saved, always saved kind of thing. And uh, this is quite an issue that you've got people here who were needing to be saved from the wrath of God. Well, when was that going to happen? Well, that was future to the time this was written down by Paul. And yet they had already been justified by his blood. You get that? A lot of people think justified equals saved. Well, apparently Paul didn't, at least not in this context. And this is a good time for me to bring up uh, a point. One thing I figured out years ago is the question, wait a minute, saved from what? And this is a very good question indeed. Here we get a very specific saved from. It says saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, well, is that the only thing in the Bible from which people ever got saved? And that's a bigger topic than we have time to cover today. But it is a fantastic question. And it can help guide your thinking as you read salvation passages uh, from time to time. And I'll give you a for example, uh, just so you're not left completely hanging. Um, some people don't get this, but I'll tell you anyway. Uh, there were angels. God created angels and not just humans. Well, duh, Jack, everybody knows that. Everybody who's been to church knows that. Well, yeah, but you don't know much about it if um, your church is like the typical church because they don't talk much about um you know, they don't get into the scholarship of what were the angels about, what were they doing, what were their jobs, what all happened with that, how did it go wrong with some of them, and so forth. Uh, and yet, uh, what you have, in my view of the Bible, you have humankind set uh, right in the middle of a world filled with rebel angels. Uh, that's the way I read it. I think it's as if... Mankind were on an island in a raging sea of wicked angels. And uh, as, as we keep going on, I'll explain more and more of that and why I think that is the case. Um, so uh, you can certainly see now, even uh, whether you believe there's angels on the earth or not, you can certainly see that um, there's a lot of evil around you in the world and that you have to live uh, trying to be good as a Christian, hopefully, in the middle of the sea of evil. And so uh, I think that's what was happening with uh, rebel angels in the beginning, where uh, mankind was started in the middle of that. And so the question is, ah, well, at the end of the story, uh, what does Jesus do with those rebel angels? Well, he destroys them. He throws them in the lake of fire. They die like men, uh, and their spirits are thrown forever in the lake of fire, never to get out. And then what happens to planet Earth? Well, they are gone from planet Earth, and no longer is the planet in subjection to angels, either good ones or bad ones. And um, if you're familiar with, the, familiar with the Genesis 6 story, uh, and Genesis 10 and 11, uh, God puts the nations who had rejected God again and again, he hands them over and has angels run them. Here you go. You take care of them. See you later. So some, some will refer to, the, refer to this as God uh, divorcing the nations. <clears throat> and uh, you can learn a lot about that from Michael Heiser's work uh, on what he calls divine counsel and uh, the divine counsel worldview or the, the uh, Deuteronomy 32 worldview, and we've certainly discussed that before. Okay, so, so here's what I'm getting at. If humans for all those generations are born, born into a world that is uh, under the control of angels uh, and some good ones and some bad ones in different roles, and then Jesus steps in and says, nope, that time is done it's all over. Then has he saved the world from that kind of evil? Well, yes, he has. So the question is, did Jesus wear more than one savior hat? Did he save people from more than one thing? Uh, or, or is it just, you know, save them from their sins, 
save them from the wrath of God, from punishment for their sins, save them from the lake of fire. Uh, you know, all those are kind of the same thing or either so closely related they might as well be the same thing in some ways. Uh, is that all there is to it or is there something more? Well, I think that Jesus saved the world from being under the rulership of Satan, whom he called the ruler of this world three times in the Gospel of John. So um, so there's that, something for you to consider. And there's more to be considered with all that whole question, but I just wanted to give you something to chew on there. So uh, here we have people in Romans 5.9. They had been justified past tense by his blood and yet would be future saved from the wrath of God. So there is a, a call for a big adjustment uh, for some people's thinking. And then I'll go on to the very next verse. Uh, for the record, uh, Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, and notice that's past tense, they got reconciled to God uh, while being enemies, uh, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Uh, so the reconciliation was past, and yet the salvation still future. And if we have to be careful and notice this, otherwise you just blow right by it a thousand times when you read and never realize that, hey, this verse is telling you something about how it worked. Uh, they weren't yet saved uh, in their sense of talking about it here, and uh, yet they were reconciled. So Jesus had made them right with God, and yet it still remained to be seen whether they uh, would be saved uh, when the time for salvation actually came. Right? This is the way they talked about it, and you might not want to talk about it this way, and maybe you don't talk about it this way at your church, but are you trying to um, fit in with the Bible, or are you trying to make the Bible just uh, fit in with your church, you know, when, whenever it's convenient? Uh, going on, Romans nine twenty-seven, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So here again we have sort of the you know day of the Lord language, uh, wrath of God language. Uh, and yet this salvation was considered future. It seems to be tied to that day of the Lord. Well, uh, these are the sons of Israel. How come you're not saying, Paul, that they're already saved you know, already? Well, because that's not how Paul thought about this. And a lot of Christians, to be fair, will say, well, of course they weren't saved. Jesus hadn't come and, you know, uh, provided the sacrifice for them and all that. Uh, but at the time Paul's writing here, they had, he had come. So um, anyway, still it's a salvation that's future. Uh, Romans 10 verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, it doesn't explicitly state the timing of the salvation here, that it happens at the moment of the confession and belief. Rather, it uses the same future tense language that is consistent with so many of these other passages, where it is quite clear that they're looking to some future event that was connected with the day of the Lord, or the second coming, and so forth. Okay, uh, Romans 10.10, 10, the very next verse. Uh, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So let's take a moment here to notice a very interesting thing. So many will tell you that salvation comes by belief, or belief alone, or by grace, or by grace alone. <laughs> in fact, there are several alones that uh, happen you know, it's in Christ alone. And uh, people often will recite this litany of alone things without realizing that this is uh, logically, uh, they rule each other out, right? If you say grace alone, well, that means there's no forgiveness or no Christ. In, you know, and so it, people get kind of sloppy in the way they like to talk about these things. And so I just hope we can be careful as we do it. So... Uh, this says that with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Well, this would strike many as heretical 
because they have it in their minds that salvation, as a result of any physical activity, such as speaking, is a teaching of the devil. But here, Paul has some sort of link in mind between salvation and the confession of Christ. And yes, I know that this verse is different from the future tense ones that we're looking at, um, yet here it comes in the immediate context of 10.9, uh, which is in that future tense. And three verses later, Paul will look back at it again. And we're going to see that in just a minute. So here we have um, the way they talked about salvation. Uh, that confessing of Jesus, that had something pretty serious to do with that. And yet this is a thing that people must do. It's a work. It's a deed. And this modern sentiment that, oh, no, that can't be right. It has to be freely given from God completely, not works, not earning your salvation. Well, um, one of the problems with that sort of argumentation is that it doesn't take into account all the possibilities. Uh, for example, can you be given a free ticket to a $1,000 concert? Yes, you can. Uh, when you get there, do you have to present the ticket to get in? Yes, you do. Well, I don't have to present my ticket. That's an, a work. <laughs> I, I, I'm here by a free gift. I don't have to do works to get in. And the bouncer at the door says, look, no ticket, no admission. Get out of here. Right. And so you can say, oh, no, that's definitely a work. That's not the gospel. Well, it looks like here, if there was no confession, you're not getting in. And uh, people, that's how Paul talked about it. Now, you might have to check that with your preacher to be sure it's okay with your preacher if you go with the original gospel and not the new version. Uh, but that's what they did. And, you know, people get so uh, just insane about this uh, idea of, uh, you know, trying to earn your salvation by requiring works. Mm. No, that's not the only way to size all those scriptures up. And that's the way that you've been taught to do it, maybe. Uh, but that is not the way that the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament sized it up. And so you're at odds with them, and you need to go straighten that out. Uh, here's an example. Somebody says, oh, there's no works at all required to be uh, saved. And I'll say, really? So what goes on in your mind is not a matter of work? Because you're going to tell me in the next breath that you have to believe. And I'm going to tell you, well, uh, based on my study in cognitive science, belief is a work. It is a thing that people do. They have to manage their minds such that uh, the prevailing belief is A and not B. And they have to fight off the temptation to believe B instead of A. It's definitely work. It definitely requires effort on the part of the human. Or here's another one. I'll ask, somebody will tell me, oh, no, there's absolutely no effort whatsoever is required to be saved. And I'll say, really? Okay, then. Uh, can you give me an example of somebody who's been saved and never prayed? Because I'm going to submit to you that the prayer is indeed a work. They had to do the thing. You cannot pray without praying. You cannot pray without doing action. You know, even uh, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Well, wait a minute. Seeking, is that not a human effort? Isn't it a thing that the human does? Well, yes, it is. So... This modern idea, it is so exceedingly popular and insanely popular, and yet it goes against Scripture again and again and again, and people don't notice it because they don't think about these things. If you think about it, you'd realize a problem from time to time. <laughs> so uh, here we have one uh, believing with the heart and being justified, and with the mouth, the confession is necessary for them to be saved. Now, again, does it say they'll be saved at the very moment they make the confession? No, it doesn't say that. Uh, going on, uh, 
uh, quite a similar passage in Romans 10, 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, that's uh, future tense. He could have uh, found the language to say, you know, will be saved at the very moment they call on the name of the Lord. But he doesn't. Uh, and then Romans eleven twenty six, And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And indeed, that's what he was going to do. He was going to come get them and uh, not take the unrighteous ones with, but only the righteous. So that was the salvation they were looking forward to. Uh, two more here. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, uh, and this is talking about uh, apostles and evangelists, I believe. Uh, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, some modern might look at this and say, wait, what, Paul, are you telling me that the evangelists in the New Testament weren't saved already? It says, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Okay, well, it doesn't say he himself is saved already and has nothing to worry about. It puts it future. And that is absolutely contrary to the way that so many Christians are taught to think about these things today, or rather taught to not think about these things, but just repeat stuff in our meme culture, our hearsay culture. And then the last one, 1 Corinthians 5, 5. You are to, to, to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I wanted to show this one in, in particular because it links the saving to the day of the Lord. And uh, you can't get much more explicit than that. So there are 18 passages in the ESV that use this word saved quite clearly in the future tense. And we can compare that to the six or so that clearly had it in the past tense. So if this little survey of tenses is worth much, we have to wonder at why it occurs three times as often in the future tense as it does in the past tense. If this survey is sufficient to tell us anything about how they talked about the subject, we can see that they had a considerable focus on something about salvation that was yet future to them more than whatever there was about it that they considered past. So we have to ask ourselves, is it important to us to understand how they talked about this? Is it important for us to have the same understanding of the topic that they had, or are we just content to go on with our own ways and talk about it however we do already? Okay, so let me break with the search for saved for just a minute and cherry pick a couple of uh, passages. Um that use other words to make a similar point about salvation. In fact, uh, the word salvation is the search term in these following six or so passages. So listen to these. Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, uh, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Well, if their salvation was a done deal, completely finished, done and over with, all past tense, how could it possibly be nearer to them uh, at the day Paul wrote that verse than it was when they had first become believers and, you know, quote, got saved, end quote. How could that be? It's because he's looking ahead to the saving event where Jesus picks out the good guys and throws away the bad guys. That's why. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God has not destined for us wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, again, here we see salvation from the wrath. And we see they were destined for it, and yet they didn't consider they had already received it. And this is quite a Bible theme. Uh, it, this happens a lot. Uh, Hebrews 1, 14. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? When you inherit something, uh, in the typical sense of the word, you have to wait for somebody to die to get it. 
you can be written into the will and you can talk about it as if it's already happened, but it hasn't. And so here, the Christians were going to inherit salvation. They didn't write as if they had it already. Not in this case. First uh, Peter 1.5 who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Ah, here we go again, right? Definitely future the way they're looking at this, at least in this passage. And then First uh, Peter 1, 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, I love this passage because it makes us think, ah, there's some idea here about not just their faith, but the outcome of it. How's it going to turn out in the end? What kind of person are you at the end of this journey? Obtaining the outcome of your faith, which was the salvation of their souls. So the way Peter's looking at it, this is the, the lifelong process here. This is uh, fine, you came to belief. Well, how did that come out? And the outcome of their faith would be the salvation of their souls, provided they stayed in the faith, right? And so, again, he's not looking to the moment they got uh, saved, prayed Jesus into their heart, or you know, uh, got baptized, or whatever, got confirmed, whatever one might think is how you get saved. And I know that's a huge topic, and you know, we'll look at that. Uh, but for now, uh, I... <laughs> I think people would do better on um, soteriology is what they call it the, uh, from the uh, from the original words about salvation. Well, people would do better at their soteriology on how to get saved if they better understood the judgment and that this very lesson we're looking at today that's already but not yet uh, manner of speaking about it in the New Testament. as uh, What happens is people tend to cherry-pick the passages they like. Oh, you know, we were saved in past tense, therefore everything's all taken care of. I'm done. My journey is done. My mission is done. Uh, my work is done, right? So uh, again, we see that they were doing an awful lot of looking forward and not going around telling everybody when they were saved, uh, like a lot of people do today. But that's not the end of the matter. Uh, it's not the final consideration to be made here. For if you go read all the language about these words, saved, saved, saved uh, saving, uh, salvation, so forth, you'll see that not only is a little bit of it in the past and much more of it in the future, you'll also see that a lot of it was in the ongoing tense of a thing that was underway or in progress. Uh, here are three passages that, that show that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So here we have ongoing language. And that makes us stop and scratch our heads. Oh, wait a minute. What's going on here? How were they thinking about this whole process here? Uh, again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Well, this, there's a few things we can gather from this. One, did you notice the conditional statement? Um, in which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, meaning they believed, but they didn't hold fast, so the believing came to nothing. It was vain. It was empty. It was set at zero. So you see the condition. They had to keep the believing. They had to keep holding fast to the message that Paul was preaching. And yet, uh, you are being saved. Why is this a, a continuing thing, a process? Why is it not... Uh, Oh, yeah, we push the saved button and that person's taken care of uh, like forever and ever. Done deal. That's not the way they were thinking about it. Uh, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. 
For we are the aroma of Christ uh, to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Notice again that just as some of the living Paul was talking about were in the business of perishing, but had not yet perished, others were in the business of being saved, though not yet having been saved in the fullest and strictest sense of the word. So here are three verses that you saved in this ongoing sense. Uh, but there's more of this if you look at other variations of the word save uh, or the saved language. Uh, here's one from 1 Peter 3.18. Consider the ongoing use of saves in this. And this is a, a little lengthier a paragraph because I had to get the context nicely. Uh, so 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, my, is this one loaded. I mean, there is so much here to talk about, uh, and we can't talk about it all today. Verse 21 is the one that I wanted to show, this, this ongoing thing. Baptism, which corresponds to this, that is to the flood and ark of Noah, uh, it now saves you, um, and then it, it gives some details, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, I'll take a minute and tell you what I think this means. And obviously, Everything about salvation is controversial, and uh, baptism is no exception. Again, the, the camp who says, oh, no, it works. No, that's work salvation. You're trying to teach you can earn your salvation through getting baptized. Uh, no, I don't know any group who says that, who says, yeah, all you have to do is get baptized, and that is such a grand work that will earn for you eternal life with God in heaven. I don't know any group who teaches that. Uh, every, anytime I hear that accusation, it is uh, uh, oversimplified and it's, it, you know, cognitively careless. And yet it, it goes around a lot and it doesn't take much to trigger people who are in that camp into thinking, well, that's work salvation, Jack. Hmm. I suggested you should pray, <laughs> right? Or that you should seek God, Right. Or that you should, quote, think about these things, right? All these are things right out of the Bible. Uh, and yet you're going to say, well, those are works, right? If you're going to tell me that uh, that someone's uh, eternal life depends on whether they did these kinds of things. Okay, so uh, here we have the baptism subject. And he says, look, you're not just washing dirt off your body. There's something else going on here. Well, what is it? Well... It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Another version says the pledge of a good conscience to God. And I, I think I prefer that one. The way I understand it, that one's more accurate. Well, what are we talking about? Well, these Christians were invited into a new covenant, not the old one, a new one. And there was a pledge of a good conscience. Okay, God. Okay, Jesus. Thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for the justification. Thank you for setting me apart, making me holy. I plan to live out my life in the image of Jesus, who is the exact representation of God, who came down here and showed us in the flesh what that means. And I pledge to live out my life. I have a good conscience about this. I am not just saying it. It is my sincere intention to do this. And how is that expressed? Well, according to this passage, it was in baptism. 
So it was the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So we're going to take a break right here and cut it off in order to finish in the next episode, which I hope you can start right away. Thanks for joining in.